Good afternoon, everyone. If you are in the UK or good morning, good evening, depending on where you may be in the world. My name is Andres Velasco. I'm the Dean of the School of Public Policy, and I want to welcome you to this event co-sponsored by the school and the LSE Public Policy Review. This is a journal started um, a couple of years ago by the School of Public Policy and by the Beverage 2.0 initiative within the LSE. And the purpose of the journal is to bring together leading scholars from the LSE and from uh, other universities to focus on public policy problems of immediate relevance to the country and to the world. And of course, over the last year and a half, there's been no more pressing issue than the pandemic. So um, the journal put together under the leadership of Professor Adnan Khan, who's here with us this afternoon, a special issue on bringing social science to bear on the policy response to the pandemic. The issue is a very good one, and um, you will get a sense of how good it is because we have three uh, of the authors. Uh, it's, it's a larger issue, but three of the authors um, whose papers are published in the issue are with us uh, this afternoon. And I think we're going to have a great discussion. We're also very lucky to be joined by Professor Ricardo Hausmann from Harvard, who uh, will be the policy respondent to some of the policy proposals that will be discussed here this afternoon. So again, thank you very much for joining us. We're very lucky to have Professor Tanya Burkhardt, who will be chairing the event this afternoon, and I'm going to hand it over to her. Thanks very much. Thank you, Andres. So I am indeed uh, Dr. Tanya Burkhart. I'm an associate director at the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion and also a member of the commissioning board for the LSE Public Policy Review. I'm very pleased to welcome our speakers and policy discussant today, Professors Francisco Favara, Lucinda Platt, Adnan Khan and Ricardo Hausman. Uh, before I hand over to them, I have a few brief announcements. Uh, for Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is LSE COVID-19. Please feel free to tweet. The event is being recorded, as you will have seen, and live streamed on Facebook. And barring any technical difficulties, we will make it available as a podcast, podcast afterwards. After the presentations, we will hand over to you, the audience, for uh, Q&A. Uh, so you will see the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen, hover if uh, it doesn't immediately appear. Uh, please use that to post your questions and comments for the panel. Those will come through to me as chair and I will try to put as many of them as I can to the panel uh, towards the end of the event. If you can, please remember to put your uh, name and affiliation as part of your question, that would be very helpful. So as Andrew uh, said, this event forms part of the LSE's Shaping the Post-COVID World initiative, uh, which is a series of debates about the direction that the world could and should take uh, after the crisis. In some ways, you may feel it's a little premature to be talking about after the crisis, since we are clearly still very much in the crisis. On the other hand, now probably is the time to be thinking forward to the time when we emerge from the crisis. Uh, and what we want to be able to put in place in order to make that a better a better world. The events are also, as Andrew said, part of the Beverage 2.0 uh, initiative and programme. 
uh, of which the LSE public policy review forms a part. The latest issue of the review is now available and we've uh, put the link to that in the chat. Uh, and in addition to the three contributors uh, who are speakers today, there are many more uh, contributions to that special issue on COVID-19, um, which I very much encourage you to, to take a look at. Our speakers have been asked to speak for no more than 10 minutes each, which is a, a tough assignment given the richness of the articles on which they're drawing, I happen to know. Uh, and they'll be followed by our fourth speaker, Ricardo, who's been invited to respond to their contributions, particularly from a policy perspective. That will leave us with around 45 minutes for the Q&A. So again, please don't hold back from posting your questions and comments uh, in a Q&A at the bottom of your screen. We're very keen to hear your, your thoughts and reactions today. The event will conclude at 5.30, uh, but unfortunately, Ricardo has to leave at five o'clock to, to chair another event. Um, so make sure you get your questions for Ricardo in early so that we can uh, make the most of our, our time with, with Ricardo. I will introduce each of the speakers in uh, more fully in their turn. Um, first up is Francisco Ferreira, also known as Chico. He is the Amartius N Professor of Inequality Studies and Director of the International Inequalities Institute at LSE. Chico is an economist working on the measurement, causes and consequences of inequality and poverty. Chico, I might just ask you to mute um, until I hand over to you, um, just so we don't get the echo. Uh, Chico's uh, work focuses on uh, developing countries in general, but Latin America in particular. And some of his recent work has been on uh, equality of opportunity and inequality of opportunity and its measurement. Chico was born and raised in Sao Paulo in Brazil. He came to LSE for his PhD, following which he had a long career at the World Bank, mostly in the research department, as well as teaching at the Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro and at the Paris School of Economics. We always hoped that he would return to LSE, and we were delighted when he accepted the position of director of the International Inequalities Institute last year. Chico is going to be talking about death and destitution, the global distribution of welfare losses from the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll hand over to Chico to share his slides with you now. Thank you very much, uh, Tanya, for those, those very kind words and to address and, uh, and Adnan and everyone else for the, for the invitation to be here. When we were testing the slides earlier today, there was a lag in my slides. Um, I hope it's going to be better now, but if not, I hope you just bear with me. I won't be able to take very long because, as Tanya said, we only have 10, 10 minutes. So hopefully you can see my screen. Can, can Tanya, uh, can, can you see my screen? Very good, okay. So the paper's called, as Tanya said, Death and Destitution. It's a sequel to an earlier paper called Lives and Livelihoods, uh, and it's uh, on the global distribution of welfare losses from the COVID-19 pandemic's joint work with Olivier Sterk and, uh, and Daniel Mahler uh, and, and Benoit de Cerf. So uh, the, the basic idea uh, of the paper is to quantify and, and, and compare losses in social welfare arising from two channels of the pandemic, mortality 
and poverty. And this is not exhaustive. You know, there are other effects of the pandemic, say, on education, uh, on, on health uh, um, outcomes and suffering that doesn't lead to death. So there are lots of other uh, uh, sources of, of, of welfare effects, but we, are gonna f- we thought we'd focus on these two, mortality and, and poverty in particular. And, and here are the two uh, photographs, both from Latin America, illustrating that. More specifically, we thought we'd address two questions. The first one is on the relative importance of those two sources, mortality and poverty. What was the relative contribution of increased mortality and greater poverty to the welfare losses caused by the pandemic? And did this vary significantly or did this vary systematically across countries? So that's about the relative importance. And then the second one is if we could aggregate those two sources of, uh, of well-being uh, or, or of loss of well-being, mortality and poverty, how were the aggregate uh, welfare losses, you know, arising from the sum of those two components distributed across countries? And of course, the sort of standard empirical challenge with this is one familiar to all the economists working on these things, which is that economic costs are typically measured in monetary units and mortality costs are typically measured in numbers of lives lost. And economists typically combine the two by assigning a monetary value to life to, to human life. Um, and this is often an issue in public debate where many people like, uh, we had a quote in one of the papers by Andrew Cuomo when he was mayor of New York, and he said to the press, uh, a human life for me is priceless, period. And so, you know, that, that was something we were trying to avoid here. I want to highlight here that our data for this paper uh, was current as of the end of last year, um, you know, in order to be in this issue of the, of the journal. But of course, quite a lot has happened since, and I'll come back to that briefly at the end. So our idea was to avoid trying to put a price in human life, uh, as you do, for example, in, value, in, in, in the value of a statistical life approach. Um, and we try to sort of change metrics. So our approach is still anchored in models of, of social welfare that, um, that aggregate, um, you know, expected lifetime utility over periods of a person's life and over individuals. But by making a few assumptions to the way we write the model, we shift the metric from a money metric to a metric of years of human life. Uh, in particular, years of human life either lost to mortality or additionally spent in poverty. And the one equation I allow myself to show you here is one that says that the change in welfare that we try to estimate can be expressed, you know, on the basis of our model in terms of a sum uh, of life years lost and added poverty years with a welfare weight alpha, which is the key normative parameter in our framework, which captures the kind of welfare weight of a life year relative to that of an additional poverty year. And we think of it as the answer people might give on average to the following question. How many years would you be prepared of your, of the rest of your life to spend in poverty in order to add one year to the, to your lifespan at the end? Okay. So that's this alpha. Obviously people's answers will vary depending on their age, their income, how far they are from the poverty line. Um, but some average of that might be the societal value for, for alpha. Okay. So, you know, with the time we have, we'll go very quickly first through these two ingredients. So let's look at life years. So here's for 145 countries that we had in our data, you know, by December 20, uh, 2020. Um, 
a plot of live years per 100,000 people lost to the pandemic. And two things that I'd like to take away from these life years, this is just the first component here, life years. Um, the colors here are for low-income countries, lower-middle-income, upper-middle-income, and, and high-income countries. Note that the scale is, is logarithmic on both axes. So this is a hugely uh, uh, you know, upward slope, uh, a sloping line here going from one to a thousand uh, years lost per per. 100,000 people. So you see that middle income, higher middle income, upper middle income and rich countries had by far the highest mortality burden measured in terms of, of, of life years. And that is for two basic reasons. One, COVID is highly age selective and these populations are much older in these richer countries. And the other is that we're adding up uh, life expectancy lost and that life expectancy, even conditional on age, is higher in richer countries. So that's fact one to take away from this graph. Fact two is that despite the, the very big slope, there's also huge variation at any level of income, suggesting that either circumstances or policy responses can make a very big difference. Amongst middle-income countries, you have Peru and Brazil and some uh, countries in the Balkans here, North Macedonia and Bosnia and Herzegovina, at, you know, a, a thousand live years uh, per 100,000 people. And you have Thailand at roughly the same uh, income level at about one. Okay. Now, there are lots of caveats, lots of data issues, lots of reporting issues that we don't have time to discuss now. We can discuss them hopefully in the question and answer session. But that's ingredient one. That's, that's mortality. And you can see this upward sloping pattern. With poverty, you basically get, obviously, as you'd expect, the reverse uh, sloping pattern. The, the costs in terms of poverty at a fixed poverty line are much higher for poorer countries than for richer countries. However, if you adopt a more relative approach and you use specific poverty lines for each country's income class, so one line for low-income countries, one for lower-middle income, one for upper-middle income, one for high income, that relationship kind of disappears and the economic cost measured only in terms of poverty is actually more or less constant across, uh, across the world. Okay. So let's try and answer those two questions. What about the first one was about, remember, the relative importance uh, of, of deaths and destitution. So we just take these poverty years, sorry, these poverty years here uh, and these life years here, and we take the ratio of them. Uh, there's no alpha here. This is just for each country, poverty years over life years. Okay. So it depends on your alpha. If your alpha is, let's say, 20, that's this upper line here. That says, that means for you, you know, you're prepared to be spent 20 years in poverty in your country to add one year to your life. Then all of these countries over here are countries where the poverty years to life is ratio is higher than that. So poverty is actually the dominant source of welfare loss. And to the ones below these lines, mortality is the dominant source. So my co-authors in another paper did a survey of this and the average answer people gave in three countries uh, the UK, Australia, and the US, oh, sorry, uh, the US, Australia, and South Africa, I believe, was seven. But that's a different survey in a different paper. You know, you could take whatever you want. Here's a guidance range, five to 20. In all these countries up here, poverty actually was a bigger source of welfare loss than mortality. So that was question one. Now, question two is, if we can agree on an alpha, so far we've been agnostic about alpha, but if we can ag agree on an alpha, can we look at the aggregate welfare costs? 
those are actually going to depend the aggregate how the aggregate welfare losses of the pandemic are distributed across countries will depend in our very simple framework on two things whether you use a single constant poverty line or a more relative one that varies across countries in your evaluation of alpha and i'm going to show you graphs for alpha equals 5 which places relatively low value on life relative to poverty and an alpha equals 20 which places a higher value on life relative to years in poverty and here are the, uh, are the results. So, so this one is for the, the constant absolute poverty line, the, the very stringent global poverty line the World Bank uses, $1.90 a day. And at that poverty line, if you choose an alpha of five, so you, you, know, you say, well, it's only, only you know, a year in poverty is very bad, and, it, 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 and you need five of them <laughs> to, to be worth one year of life lost, one year of life, not one life, one year of life lost. Well, then you actually get that despite the mortality burden being much higher in richer countries, uh, the welfare cost tends actually to be higher amongst poorer countries rather than, than the reverse. But that's the only case in my four, you know, in my two by two matrix here. That's the only case in which you get that. The moment you get to a higher valuation of a year of life relative to poverty, that slope becomes positive. And if you use relative poverty lines, you know, a poverty line for each uh, country category here, again, these are upward sloping lines, suggesting that despite having much better health systems and just, you know, better social protection systems and being generally richer, uh, these richer and middle income countries over here suffered more than the poorer countries because of the age selectivity of the pandemic, right? So I'll end with this slide, just summarizing uh, briefly some of the things I've already said. First, the mortality burden of COVID-19 is borne disproportionately by middle income, you know, largely Latin American, but also some countries in Southern Europe, middle income countries and richer countries. And this is because they're older and the virus is highly age selected. Conversely, the poverty burden was borne disproportionately by poorer countries. Uh, if you use a constant poverty line, less clear pattern if you use a weekly relative poverty line. Globally, unlike the debate in, in, you know, in, in, in many of the newspapers and the media in richer countries, uh, which have focused on mortality because mortality was the, the, the most important cause of welfare loss for them, poverty consequences have actually been a first-order cause of welfare losses from the pandemic. Even with a high alpha, poverty turns out to be the dominant source of welfare loss in 70 of our 145 countries, and obviously more if you use a lower alpha. Um, so I've already said these things. I'm just going to end with a little caveat. This was by December 2020. 2021, we can speculate with some degree of confidence who have made aggregate results worse because the pandemic continued to be very severe. And likely the distribution of losses more skewed against poorer and middle-income countries where vaccines are being distributed much more slowly and ineffectually than in richer countries. So thanks very much uh, for that. I'll stop sharing here. Thanks. Thank you, Chico. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, I'm sure there will be lots of questions that people want to put to you both methodologically and in terms of your your very interesting results and conclusions and indeed the implications of those conclusions um, I encourage people to use the Q&A function and we will return to pick those up um, after the other speakers have made their contributions as well so we turn now to our second speaker professor Lucinda Platt 
Lucinda is Professor of Social Policy and Sociology and Head of the Social Policy Department here at LSE. She joined the department in 2013 from UCL Institute of Education, where she was director of the very important Millennium Cohort Study. She is also a co-investigator on Understanding Society, the UK Household Longitudinal Study, uh, leading for that study on ethnicity and immigration. Lucinda's research focuses on analysis of inequality within and between social groups, both in the UK and internationally. She also works on identity and intergroup relations and on child poverty and child development. She's currently a panel member for the IFS Deaton Inequality Review, for which she recently co-authored a study investigating ethnic inequalities in vulnerabilities to COVID-19. And it's that subject that she's going to talk about today, uh, drawing on her article for LSE Public Policy Review. Over to you, Lucinda. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tanya. Um, for that kind of introduction. So uh, yes, I'm going to be drawing on both the um, both pieces of work that Tanya mentioned there, the work I did last year um, with uh, Ross Warwick um, on um, uh, ethnic inequalities in COVID and the um, paper I've done um, for the um, review, but also trying to sort of make some broader reflections, not, not, not just replicating either of those pieces. So Chico just discussed um, uh, impacts of the pandemic in terms of mortality and um, poverty. So health costs and economic costs you might think of and how they don't necessarily, it's shown how they don't necessarily follow the same pattern. Uh, in my comments that follow, I'm going to be talking about um, health and economic impacts as well, but not across countries, um, across ethnic groups and within a single country. So I'm going to be focusing on the UK here. So in the UK, one of the earliest um, and potentially most startling um, inequalities in the impact of the pandemic was observed differences in mortality across um, ethnic groups in the UK. So in one of the earliest analyses on this topic, Ross Warwick and I found that death rates from COVID-19 were substantially higher for minority ethnic groups than would be expected from their age and sex and geographical profiles. Uh, for example, for black Africans, they were 3.7 um, 3 times what would be expected. For Pakistanis, 2.9 times. And for black Caribbeans, 1.8 times. So some quite substantial um, differences in mortality. Subsequent research endorsed these findings and ethnic mortality differentials um, for South Asian and black groups. And these were also shown to persist across second wave. So our analysis was on, clearly on the first wave, um, but these, these uh, uh, ethnic differentials in mortality um, were shown to pers persist um, into this year. Though there was some variation, the um, groups most affected in the second wave were the South Asian rather than the black groups. So there's been a huge amount of research that's been trying to identify and understand what's been causing these mortality differences. Um, and we have gained some greater insights, and I'll refer to some of those as I go along. In the, in the work with Ross, however, we also looked at the economic consequences of the pandemic and how these differed across ethnic groups. So we found that uh, Pakistani and Bangladeshi men were much more likely to work in the sectors that had been shut down. Um, uh, as a result of the pandemic. They were also more likely to be self-employed who were a group that were identified as being particularly vulnerable to the economic impacts of the pandemic. 
But interestingly, what we showed was that for these men, it was those who were in midlife um, rather than youth um, who were most likely to be affected. Whereas across the population as a whole, what was identified that was, was that it was more likely to be youth who were affected um, and to some extent women rather than men. So the result of this, that these were men in midlife, was that uh, the fact family circumstances of those affected um, were quite ethnically specific. So these midlife workers were more likely to be living in couples um, and not necessarily with second earners uh, who might buffer the effects, um, these economic effects. For example, we showed that 29% uh, of Bangladeshi working age men both worked in a sector that was shut down by the pandemic and had a partner who was not in paid work themselves. So you can see that immediately the impacts on both members of the couple. 29% of Bangladeshi working men with this age men were in the situation is compared with 1% of white British men being in this particular situation. So quite big differences. And again, we were using um, data that preceded the pandemic to sort of infer what the effects of the economic effects of the pandemic were. But subsequent research has demonstrated that there are differential, have been differential impacts across ethnic groups and that are consistent with our findings. So when thinking about ethnic inequalities um, in the impacts of the pandemic, both health and economic impacts warrant attention. And indeed, I think the factors that um, lead to them can be seen as interlinked. Um, so in the paper, the paper, in the review paper, I start from the position that um, both health and economic impacts um, can benefit from being understood more in relation to the household context. So the household can, context can both exacerbate exposure to health risks and have implications for economic impacts, as I've briefly illustrated. And that we need to pay attention to occupational concentration. So where different ethnic groups are working or working um, to a larger extent. And again, these can be linked to both to health risks and to economic consequences. In addition, I think another, a further key question we need to think about is to what extent are we seeing um, immigrant inequalities in these differences across ethnic groups and to what extent are they ethnic inequalities? And I'll just say a little bit more about what I mean by that. So by immigrant inequalities, I refer to the factors that are associated with the experience of immigration itself, um, factors that may then shape work and living arrangements. For example, recruitment into particular occupations or sectors, immigration um, controls that shape the possibilities of work and also that shape the possibilities of not working um, if there's no recourse to public fence, if there's no recourse to out of work um, uh, uh, support, financial support. Immigration is also associated with, um, at least initially, migration into particular areas that tend to be areas of, of that are, have migrant concentrations. Um, and housing options tend to be much more constrained um, for immigrants in the UK. And again, particularly for more low-paid low workers and for those without the possibility of accessing social housing, for example, because of immigration restrictions. By con contrast, by ethnic inequalities, um, I'm, not, I'm not, I would emphasise, invoking biological explanations, but instead I'm thinking about the ways that there is persistence across generations um, from those of the same countries of origin, uh, not only in group identity, um, but also in terms of experiences and activities. So living arrangements, what sort of jobs they're concentrated in, and areas of residence. Such resistance would suggest kind of some sort of sense of groupness um, of those of both the first and second generation from a given ethnic origin, um, by contrast with the break we might expect between immigrants and the second generation, if we were talking about as an Im immigrant um, experience. 
And within ethnic, this, this idea of ethnic inequalities, I also include the experience of racism and discrimination, uh, racism and discrimination focused on ethnic origins uh, rather than on foreigners per se. Um, so the persistence of group level stereotypes that encompass both the immigrant and the UK born. So that's my starting point. So what, what does this, how does this help? What do we observe when we take a household, occupational and generational perspective on ethnic inequalities in the consequences of the pandemic? And how far do we see um, connections between the consequences for health and the consequences for income? So just thinking through it, um, risks of exposure to infection can take place in the workplace, but they can also take place in the home. And the two are interlinked, of course, when people cohabit. Uh, when, uh, when people living in a household cohabit with someone who is exposed to their work, and also when people um, who, are, um, who get infected are then exposing others in the household who need to care for them. And we know that a, a, a number of um, ethnic minority groups are more likely to live in multi-generational households and particularly more likely to be living in overcrowded housing, which clearly creates challenges for social distancing in the home when such exposure leads to infection. And we know that the occupations that some minorities uh, work in um, are much more likely to be key worker occupations and higher, have higher risks of infection and higher risks of mortality themselves. And so then there's a risk that they're bringing these home. So I think you need to think about that, um, that infection risk, those mortality risks very much in a household perspective to fully start to understand them. And there has been some analysis which has shown that uh, um, uh, multi-generational larger households or overcrowded households different measures have been used in different analyses, um, do um, explain some, of, some differences in more mortality. We also know that uh, health risks are higher among certain ethnic groups and are potentially less well managed. So there's sort of the relevant health risks for COVID-19. Um, and, and the level at which they're less or better or less well managed and the extent to which there are comorbidities puts um, these groups at greater risk of um, greater severity of the disease and therefore for, for, for given infection of mortality. Um, and, these, and we know that these health risks themselves may stem in part um, from discrimination and economic inequality. We know about the, the, the um, uh, health impacts of um, poverty and inequality, and we know about some of the health impacts of the experience of discrimination. And these together may increase this vulnerability um, to COVID. So again, you can't really separate out the health and the poverty experience. Ethnic minorities, particularly certain ethnic groups, are more likely to work in sectors that are subject to lockdowns, I've shown. But then is this, is this as I've said, is this an immigrant issue, um, as immigrants are recruited to and cluster in particular occupations, or is it a wider ethnic group issue as occupational transmission um, across the generation and the inequitable structuring of the labour market concentrates groups in certain occupations, both in the immigrant and the second generation? And from the, from the research I did, the answer seems to be both are true to some extent. There is greater um, occupational concentration in the immigrant generation, but there's also an interesting level of um, occupational transmission across the generations. And there is still higher levels of occupational concentration in the second generation, the UK born, than there is in the majority population as a whole. So just to give one example, 17% um, of UK-born Indian men are in the, uh, uh, in the jobs that, um, uh, the top kind of five jobs that these men are in, compared to 10% of white British men, 
um, and 27% of UK-born uh, Bangladeshi women are in those in their in their top five jobs compared to 90% of white British women. And thinking about this issue of persistence that we see, we see the same sorts of occupations turning up in the same five across the first and second generation. So perhaps one of the most striking examples is that 20% or over 20% of first generation Pakistani men are taxi drivers. But even among the UK born, the proportion is 8%. So 8% in a given occupation is a really high share. Um, so, so and we're seeing that they're the same occupations. So how am I doing for time, Tanya? Have I got a couple more minutes? One minute would be ideal. Okay. So um, occupational continuity, I think, across generations can then be understood both as a symptom of structural inequalities that shape and limit access to particular occupations, um, but can also help us to understand within family occupational transmissions that shape the group experiences across generations. And what we also see when I look at families, and I'll keep this very brief given my one minute, is that when you look at family structures and the organisation of family structures, that you also see similar patterns of intergenerational transmission of family structures, which means that those groups who have, for example, larger households or more likely to have single parent households in the immigrant generation, we see the same patterns in the second generation. Suggesting that these are kind of, there is that, that we need to take seriously this sort of groupness, um, and that these are uh, issues which persist across the generations, even if we're also seeing some generational change. So I think we need to think about, in conclusion, um, how the structuring of the labour market um, uh, consigns some roles to immigrants. Um, and consign some roles more than others to immigrants, and that these have consequences not just for the immigrants, but in the longer term and how that social structure is organised. Um, and these combine there thus with processes of intergenerational transmission and processes of labour market and economic exclusion across the generations. And these, this gen this, it, these processes of exclusion themselves then heighten health risks. Um, and this altogether means that um, we can't separate uh, COVID-19, the impacts of the pandemic, discreetly into health and economic impacts. But we have to think about how they're mutually implicated. And I'm not going to say anything about policy implications now, because I'm going to save that for the questions. And I'm going to hand back to Tanya. So thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Lucinda. And sorry to rush you a little, but as you say, I hope we'll be able to come back to some of these issues and the policy implications in the Q&A. Indeed, there are already questions coming in, which is, is great. I'm going to hold on to those until until the end. Keen in particular that we uh, don't cut Ricardo too short because of uh, his need to, to leave us, unfortunately, at five o'clock. But first, um, I want to introduce Professor Adnan Khan. Welcome. Um, Professor Khan is Professor in Practice at LSE's School in Public Policy. Uh, before Joining uh, the School of Pol Public Policy, Professor Khan served as Research and Policy Director at the International Growth Centre here at LSE, and he also taught public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. He spent more than 15 years in the policy world as a practitioner, policymaker and activist, and more than 10 years in the research world as researcher, lecturer and catalyst for other people's research, as well as his own areas of interest in economic development, state capacity, political economy, state fragility, and public finance. He's therefore especially well-placed to reflect on how well or badly states have prepared for and responded to the COVID-19 crisis. 
and it's that subject that he's going to address today. Over to you, Adnan. Thank you for the generous introduction, uh, Tanya. Uh, so let me start sharing my screen. Uh, I hope you can see this. Uh, yes. So this is joint work with colleagues. Our focus is on developing countries and emerging economies. And we're talking about like preparing uh, lessons from the COVID-19 experience in preparing for crisis. Uh, I spent a lot of time working for governments and let me start with the word, word of praise for uh, government responses in most of the countries. Um, I think a highlight of my experience in working for governments is that we were always working in firefighting mode. And that uh, we realized that governments could function, only function at high levels uh, for very short periods of time and over very small geographic areas. So one must appreciate most of the governments, though maybe not all, in that, that they have risen to the challenge and have functioned at high levels over wide geographical areas for long periods of time. However, there, is, there are things that governments could have done differently, uh, which could have improved outcomes. And we'll be talking about some of those lessons with a view that they could help address uh, uh, some of these underlying challenges and help us prepare better for future crisis. And ideally help build greater state capacity in general. Um, so I'll talk about three issues here. One is the issue that uh, at least initially, the response of many governments was, we have limited knowledge, we are flying blind. We either need to copy from somewhere else or do something else. And um, I would say that the res government responses, the state response in many places was hampered less by lack of knowledge, but more so by limited understanding of how to acquire relevant knowledge and capacity. In other words, learning to learn is a key uh, feature of state capacity. And there was a lot of prior existing knowledge and information that governments could have uh, brought to bear in terms of their policy response. And I'll show you a couple of examples of those. The second, uh, when talking especially at developing countries and emerging economies is what I would call siloed approach, uh, approaches and limited uh, collaboration and coordination. So first between academic silos, uh, we talk a lot about like multidisciplinary work, uh, but when it came to comes to crisis, um, not many disciplines have been talking to each other, uh, especially in developing countries, um, despite the challenge being such that it requires uh, people from expertise from different disciplines working together. Um, I can give you many, many examples of those. Uh, one of those being, uh, we have great EPI models that are great as a starting point, but that do not incorporate uncertainty and behavioral responses, at least in their initial attempts at modeling. And that could benefit quite a lot by working with expertise from other disciplines. And similarly, uh, other examples also. When you look into responses of governments, we also see in some places at least, um, absence of mechanisms to coordinate among different agencies. So different agencies and different uh, government players often working at cross purposes and at worse. Uh, sometimes we also see, uh, and the paper has many examples of those of uh, cases of unhealthy competition where policy actors are trying to, to avoid blame by passing on blame to other actors. And obviously that's not very conducive to to building an effective policy response. 
similarly, uh, in, when it comes to call it politics, uh, what we see is a temptation for political leaders to what Bowen and Arjun in a parallel uh, article in the same volume put it very nicely, to go big and do it fast. That's what we saw in the first stage of the pandemic. Unfortunately, in the second stage, at least in some parts of the world, South Asia, maybe Latin America, what we also see is a sense of exceptionalism and maybe complacency that has come back to haunt, unfortunately, many regions of the world. Uh, what we also see is states with limited trust have not been able to achieve, the, achieve much in terms of uh, voluntary compliance. And in another volume, in another paper in the volume, uh, uh, Tim Besley and, and uh, Sasha Dre argue that countries with higher in, in, interpersonal trust and higher confidence in government have fared better. The paper provides more examples of these. Uh, and here are some like examples of how we could use more information. This comes from Delhi. This comes from variation in risk of hospitalization. Uh, which is based on uh, age, sex, hypertension, diabetes, and smoking across different areas in, uh, in Delhi, different neighborhoods, with areas in red obviously being more, uh, uh, more uh, risky, uh, with a view that such information, which is already available, could be used to have better targeted lockdown and other, uh, other strategies. With the caveat that uh, one needs to have policies that do not exacerbate underlying inequalities. Here is another example of that. Here is the age distribution in Pakistan and Italy, and you can see that how widely different those are. Um, Italy has a lot more people in the, in, in the more aged category compared to Pakistani population, which is far uh, younger. Um, if you look into their spatial distribution, urban rural areas, occupational choices, uh, mobility patterns, risk profile, disease progression, there's a lot of information that is already existing that one could use in order to design smart containment strategies, uh, something that we, uh, we did in working with several governments in, uh, in planning such measures, which are based on smart grading gridding, geographical uh, targeting, uh, grading in terms of different levels, and also based on the principles of active learning, uh, something that I will, I will quickly discuss. So my last couple of slides, I am con uh, cognizant of the time. Um, what lessons do we draw in terms of like how states should do better in future? Uh, three things, adopting an active learning mindset, preparing data infrastructure for crisis response and improving coordination, building state capacity and trust. And let me say a word about each of those. Um, an active learning mindset, uh, we are not flying blind. We have a lot of prior information, but we could also take actions that not only um, are effective now, but that also speed up the learning that we need and we ref so that we refine actions based on actively gained knowledge. In other words, act in a manner where we not only uh, respond, but also gain more knowledge that we can then use to refine our response. Something that uh, social scientists know for a long time, um, decision-making under uncertainty and using that knowledge and those approaches in terms of active policy-making, uh, what we call an, with an active learning mindset. Second, preparing data infrastructure and capacity for uh, crisis response. Uh, my experience in working with governments, every time a crisis uh, emerged, there was a lack of coordination, but also 
uh, following say an earthquake everyone wanted to go to the with relief to the first village that came on, along the way um and the response was often not based on uh, the heterogeneous needs of different places and coordinated between different actors i would say public actors private actors and not for profit actors and and now today that we have a lot of data sources not just a traditional census type of data national data we also have administrative data all of those could be digitized we have geo geospatial data and we have Uh, private sector and citizen generated data like say cell phone data and mobility data um, and all of these data sets along with appropriate caveats for privacy could be integrated to pre- create data infrastructure that could then be along with those one could create protocols to activate access and revise these these data sets and different layers of these data sets in real time uh, these could be activated in times of emergency along with that one could also create flexible plans plans based on our existing knowledge but which already incorporate uh, elements of how do we update those based on real time knowledge and also create new structures structures that are flat flexible and um, uh, that are also fast and uh, i that also incorporate uh, different kinds of expertise uh, call them um, Uh, authorizers mobilizers but also implementers and it's not just the developed countries and oecd that provide good examples of doing that uh, i can share some examples that i myself were witnessed from sierra leone and liberia which created such fast flat and flexible structures to deal with the ebola epidemic a few years ago successfully uh lastly uh, coming back to politics uh my last uh, point um improving coordination capacity and trust um it's important to to create structures that um uh, whereby we share different government agencies and policy actors share credit for policy innovations and more importantly mitigate blame for failures something which is very common in in policy organizations and uh Uh, to creating a norm where failure is seen as an opportunity to learn and not an opportunity to assign blame uh, to someone because that hinders uh, innovation and cooperation and coordination uh, adopt prag- pragmatist not big decision approach again boyn and lodge put it very well and promote common purpose um, um, in order to increase trust in the state that could then be used to to have more voluntary compliance and do more uh, my colleague our colleague joint colleague uh, tim bestley has written quite a lot about this uh, in this volume and elsewhere let me stop here thank you thank you very much indeed uh, adnan i'm sure people will want to come back on on the implications for handling of future crises based on what you're saying let me turn straight away though now to our policy discussant professor ricardo houseman thank you very much indeed for making the time for us today professor houseman is rafik hariri professor in practice of international political economy and director of the growth lab at the harvard kennedy school previously uh, his many roles probably too many for me to enumerate right now um, but let me just highlight the being chief economist of the inter american development bank where he created the research department 
chair of the IMF World Bank Development Committee, Minister of Planning, Planning of Venezuela in the early 1990s, member of the board of the Central Bank of Venezuela, uh, as well as professor of economics in Caracas, where he founded the Center for Public Policy. I could go on, but I won't. Um, Ricardo is ideally placed, I think, to respond to the contributions we've heard so far from both an academic and a policy perspective. Over to you, Ricardo. You're still muted. There we are. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you very much for this invitation. I'm in awe of the dynamism that LSE is showing. Um, and um, so, so congratulations uh, for for this incredible work and for putting this volume together. I learned a lot uh, reading about it. So, um, uh, and uh, and I have uh, you know I'm going to highlight the many things I, I learned uh, while reading it, uh, but also uh, to say something about. Um, uh, um, uh, you know some some reflections that uh, that uh, uh, these papers have created uh, have uh, caused on me. So I'm going I'm going to preface by reminding ourselves that um, uh, when asked uh, in the 1970s and the early 1970s, uh, uh, Chuan Lai was asked, uh, you know, what was his opinion about the French Revolution? Uh, he said uh, it's it's a bit too soon to tell. And and uh, and I think that um, that's uh, an important reflection because uh, uh, we are not analyzing COVID as a done deal. We are analyzing COVID probably towards the end of the first half or so. Um, but um, uh, you know, very early in the process of this pandemic, and it's it's hard to. It has some implications. It's hard to, uh, uh, you know. Um, they derive too many lessons before you've seen the whole story play out, but also uh, the importance of figuring things out because there's still a lot of game to play. It, this is not a done deal. Whatever we learn now is going to be incredibly useful because it's still an active, uh, an active uh, game. So, so this uh, with this uh, preamble, I, I want to say, I you know, uh, let me let me tackle the three papers. I found uh, Chico's uh, presentation and paper beautiful. Uh, I find his um, decomposition of, uh, of of the welfare effects uh, very uh, very compelling. I like uh, his idea of measuring things in years of life. I think it's more intuitive than in in dollars, and it's more meaningful than in dollars. In uh, I think uh, you know he's very careful in analyzing the welfare implications of of, of different things and, and uh, you know the uh, you know take your pick of your alpha then you know uh, what you want to say but he he ends up with you know arguing that in the end uh, for most valuations it seems to have been a crisis that uh, hurt more the richer countries than the poorer countries. Uh, and I, I, I want to take a little bit of issue with this last conclusion, precisely because of this show in life phenomenon. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm going to, uh, to make the following uh, claims uh, to see if you, if you agree with me. Um, it, there is no such thing as a long-term success against this virus uh, other than immunity. 
that it's not that, you know, if you have a more coherent uh, society with more trust, this, that, and the other, somehow you're going to keep the virus at bay, um, except through immunity. And there's only two ways of getting immunity. One way is to get sick and survive. And the other way is to get vaccinated. But uh, except for those two uh, uh, mechanisms, there's nothing about social distancing, social trust, and in the long run is going to beat this, um, this virus. And uh, the success we have today in controlling the virus only increases the, the size of the susceptible population tomorrow and makes you more vulnerable tomorrow. And a, and a really dramatic way of uh, presenting this is to compare uh, Spain to Uruguay. In, in, in um, last year, everybody was talking about how Uruguay was so cohesive and stuff and so different from Argentina and so different from Spain and what can we learn from Uruguay? Well, there was nothing durable to learn from Uruguay because they were successful at the beginning when they got infected uh, with a more, more transmissible variant, they got into world record levels of infection and death. Um, and so, so uh, my sense of this is that uh, all the countries that have had relatively low deaths, uh, maybe because they are less connected to the world, there's less international travel, there's less mechanisms for the virus to get in, but in the long run, the virus gets in and does its thing. Uh, so, so I think the, um, the death rates of the, 20, of, of the year 2020 are a poor indication of the long-term deaths that this virus is going to create. Um, now, in addition, um, I would say it's very interesting that uh, uh, you know, there were dramatic recessions in 2020, uh, and very much so in the countries that, uh, that Chico uh, uh, identified. But we need to think about the long-term uh, consequences of, um, of the um, uh, of, of the shock. And uh, Chico uh, used in, in his paper uh, uh, the projections of the World Bank. I'm going to, because I, I didn't have them at hand, I, I used the projections of, of the IMF and asked myself, okay, what is, does the IMF think is going to be the GDP in 2024 of countries relative to what they thought the GDP in 2024 was in, in their world economic outlook of 2019, so before the event, okay? And uh, for the IMF, they think that the GDP in the US is going to be higher than they thought was going to be before the pandemic. So it's, it's more than a V-shaped recovery, it's an over-recovery. Uh, the difference in China by 2024 is more or less insignificant. Uh, the difference in in Latin America is seven percentage points of GDP in 2024. Uh, the difference in South Africa is eight percentage points of GDP. The difference in India is 12 percentage points of GDP. So these losses are going to be a longer term. So I'm a little bit concerned that as we make the, obviously, thanks to Shiko's paper, we will be able to do his calculations later on. But my sense is that um, we have set ourselves up for a situation in which <clears throat> the rich countries will have vaccinated themselves by 2021. 
uh, that their economies will be recovering and that uh, the rest of the world, most of it, uh, will still be battling uh, the virus in 2022 and 2023 and that they will be uh, you know, fighting with uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions that will come at significant economic costs and that this is going to build up. So as I said before, we are in the first half of the game uh, and, uh, and these, these, um, uh, these losses are going to be to change significantly. But thanks to Chico's paper, we, we have a way of thinking of you know, what these numbers are going to be down the road. I think uh, Lucinda Platt's paper was really, really uh, uh, eye-opening and and uh, and really concerning about these huge differences in mortality by ethnic groups. And and obviously, I mean, it's very well done. And 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 you know, the differences between the first generation and the second generation. But uh, she highlights some some of the transmission uh, mechanisms. Obviously, uh, uh, um, she puts a great emphasis on employment. You know, this was a, a, a virus uh, that made a distinction between uh, those who can work through Zoom and those who can have to work physically. And consequently, the frontline workers that had to go out were more likely to, uh, to get infected. And as a consequence, who had those jobs, etc. So that's one, one mechanism. Uh, but um, there are uh, uh, many other potential mechanisms uh, that she sort of mentions, but we, we don't have the evidence, uh, the, the precise evidence of, you know, it, it does biological diversity play a certain role? Uh, and if so, maybe, maybe, you know, if people are diverse in some way, maybe they have to be treated differently. And maybe we have standard treatments that work in some populations and not in other populations. And, and we don't know what those relevant distinctions are. So I think this, this agenda is very important to figure out, you know, um, uh, I think to make more precise what is the mechanism through which these differential mortality rates uh, are operating. You know, it could be through work, but you no, know, then people get infected at home, and that depends on the household composition. So, what's the evidence for household composition? Or, you know, what happened in many parts in the in the U.S. and especially in Spain is that the people were living in retirement homes, and you know, death rates in retirement homes were huge. They and they were not stopped by by uh, you know uh, quarantines uh, because everybody will you know they got sick where they live, right? So the, the transportation system. Um, is, you know, an important element. You know, the rich in many places go on their own cars and the poor go in buses and etc. Or, or the retail system. Uh, you know, there's this um, paper by Hugo Niopo in Peru that argues that the people who don't have refrigerators at home, they have to go and purchase food more frequently. And it's in those frequent purchases outside that they probably get infected and so on. So, so what are the mechanisms is really, really important to figure out what are the policy implications. And finally, I really like very much Adnan's paper. Uh, and, you know, the importance that this uh, uh, crisis leaves us is with the, uh, uh, the, the importance of state capacity. And, and the things that limited state capacity, he emphasizes, you know, these silos across professions, uh, you know, epidemiologists that don't talk to social scientists and economists and so on. And, and he puts a great emphasis on the idea 
that we need to learn to learn. That uh, 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 when confronted with a situation like this one, what hits you is the ignorance with which you are confronted and asked to act upon. That you know that you don't know, but at least knowing that you don't know is so fundamental in organizing yourself because now you know that you have to first or create mechanisms to learn so that you can respond with more knowledge that you're going to acquire as you act. Uh, so, for example, at the beginning, we did not know how the disease was being transmitted. So I know, I think of a one, one prime minister who said, no, I'm going to go and visit all these people who are sick. Don't worry. I'm going to wash my hands, right? And then, and then he got sick, right? So uh, um, it's, uh, it's not knowing exactly what the transmission mechanism is. Um, do masks work or not? Well, we didn't know that at the beginning. Um, uh, what social distancing measures actually work. This is remarkably important because uh, uh, there, there have been devastating economic effects of social distancing measures, especially the ones taken in the second quarter of last year. Devastating economic effects. So you had you know, uh, dramatic collapses in employment in countries like Colombia, Peru, Argentina, etc. At the time when there was no contagion going on, but then you know they reopened and immediately they got these peaks. And at the time, you know there was no longer the capacity to impose the same kind of social distancing measures. So, so in my part of the world, in Latin America, we had the costliest lockdowns with very, very low effectiveness in terms of limiting transmission. For example, uh, you look at, uh, at uh, differential declines in mobility and differential declines in or controls of epidemiological peaks. We don't understand why South Africa has had two peaks and was able to bring them down very swiftly. And Latin America has had these, you know, highlands of peaks so you know where you know you get to a peak but th that peak is a, is a is a highland and it goes on forever and ever and and you lock everything up and the peak doesn't come down um, so so we don't know what what would have been a more effective way of implementing social distancing measures and the way to do it is to be constantly as Adnan suggests constantly being uh, accumulating data so that you can learn about the relative effectiveness of the things that you're making, uh, the things that you're deciding. I'm sure that, for example, in some countries in Latin America, they said you can only go out shopping on, on two days or three days um, a week and all the same days. Well, what happened? You bunch people up in stores and maybe enhance transmission, then reduce transmission. But there's no mechanism for you to, even if you make that mistake, to learn that you made that mistake. So, um, so there's a lot of uh, uh, this idea of learning to learn and creating the, the data infrastructure and the access to the data. Because, you know, I have, I, throughout the pandemic, I was talking to ministers of finance, uh, telling them, okay, let's, let's work on, you know, you cannot assume that the epidemiological side is going to be decided alone by the Minister of Health because it's going to have enormous uh, economic impacts. Let's get our hands with some data. And the data was not accessible to the ministers because the other ministers would not share. So um, 
So this this definitely this coordination and silos that uh, the paper refers to is is very very real. Um, there is a dimension of policy that I'm sure is in the other papers, which is about the macro response. Uh, you know, the, the big, big difference in, in, across the world is in the ability of the government uh, to compensate or to, to, uh, to protect people during the downturn. Uh, countries differ enormously in the fiscal space they have and the ability to mobilize resources. In the U.S., for example, uh, it's well known that the, the amount of social transfers were such that even though GDP declined, a personal disposable income went up in, in 2020. Uh, so people were pretty much, their welfare was fairly well protected. In, in many countries, you've seen enormous deterioration of the fiscal accounts, mostly driven by a collapse in tax revenues, not so much by the ability of the government to mobilize resources to help people. And, and the resources that they did mobilize to help people were, were minuscule compared to the amounts that we've seen in the US, in Singapore, in Canada, and so on. So, so you know, I don't know that we have yet learned uh, what is the appropriate fiscal response. Uh, um, if countries have limited fiscal capacity, how should they time it if they don't know the, the length of this of this pandemic and you know it, countries like Brazil went out all out in helping in 2020 and now they cannot help in 2021 so uh, so I think that uh, there's going to be a lot to learn when this pandemic is over and we're able to look back at the whole at the whole process but I'm in awe of the capacity of of, uh, of LSE to be able to put together so much interesting thoughts in, um, in the middle of a pandemic. And it's right when we need it because it's not over and we need all the wisdom we can mobilize. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you very, very much indeed. Um, I know you have to, to go shortly for, for another event, um, but I will make sure that the panel respond to those points, um, even if you uh, aren't immediately here to, to hear their responses. Um, first, though, I want to turn to the questions that have been put to us uh, from members of the audience who've been very patiently waiting for their turn to come. Um, so I'd like to put a question from members of the audience to each of um, and Lucinda, Chico and Adnan. Um, to Lucinda first from Tracy Birej. Do you think the UK government has done enough to account for the unequal COVID-19 impact on mortality or the economy across ethnicities in regards to the types of interventions they've implemented to overcome vaccine hesitancy, because the most impacted groups appear also to be those who are most vaccine hesitant. Um, and then a question for um, you, Chico, from Tony Hockley, a visiting fellow at LSE. A full lockdown appears not to have been part of the playbook for pandemic response in some countries, but lockdown spread from China as the policy benchmark, as Professor Khan said, go big and fast, with no welfare impact analysis. Now that lockdowns are part of the pandemic toolkit, is it inevitable that countries will be better prepared for unequal impacts. And question to you, Adnan, from Angus Chapman, uh, who's a master's student in the Department of Government here at LSE. 
How can state capacity elucidate why some countries performed well in different phases of the pandemic or differently in response to the same kinds of challenges? Australia, for example, performed extremely well in containing the pandemic and minimising community transmission in the early phases, but has struggled to manage the vaccine rollout. The exact reverse is true for the UK and the US. So I'll come to each of you in that order. Lucinda first. Thanks very much. So yes, so so has the um, has the government done enough? And I think it was particularly in relation to vaccine. So um, my vaccine hesitancy, which um, as was noted by the questioner, um, vaccine hesitancy is um, seems to be greatest or has been shown to be greatest uh, among those who might um, be most vulnerable. So particularly uh, minority ethnic groups have shown a lot of vaccine hesitancy. Um, we see this in the um, uh, opinions and um, uh, uh, polling, um, and we also see it in actual take-up rates of, of vaccines um, in local areas. Um, so, I mean, I think the, one of the issues here is, is um, and it picks up on something that everyone's saying, is about sort of trust. So I think um, the government doing something is maybe not, um, not what is going to help here because of um, some substantial loss of trust in the government. Um, so there's been um, a sense of um, uh, uh, being let down, I think, and by a lot of um, uh, ethnic minority communities in relation to some of the reports that, that have been done, the handling of the public health England report um, into, uh, into inequalities in COVID um, which was um, which was very very oddly oddly handled, um, and um, got people very upset. And then the, more recently, the um, Commission for for um, Race and Ethnic Disparities report, which um, again was um, uh, felt to be by many to be simply sort of quite insulting. Uh, so I think I think trusting government is not at a high level. I think what has been uh, done to try and address this vaccine hesitancy is. Um, uh, is much has been much more effective at local level by community leaders. So there's been a huge amount of creative activity. It hasn't solved the uptake problem, but I think it's done quite a lot to address that. And I think what we've seen is that reported rates of vaccine hesitancy were higher than actual non-take take up. So I think that the the way to go in relation to vaccine hesitancy is much more um, local routes, those who are trusted, and to build that. Um, there are of course things that government can do for other issues, but um, I'll let the, the other speakers come in um, because I don't want to. Thank you, Lucinda. Um, so, Chico, lockdowns now part of the pandemic toolkit. It's inevitable that countries will be better prepared for unequal impacts going forward. Thanks. So, so that you know does go, of course, outside uh, the, the the specific remit of, of of my paper. So, I'm speculating a little bit on the basis of of of, of um, reading other 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 work rather than, than this particular work. But two things about, about lockdowns that I would say. The, the first is that, as with many other things, the devil is in the detail and it matters tremendously how the lockdown is implemented. Um, and the different kinds of countries um, are able to do lockdowns differently and benefit from them differently. So uh, I, I, I think an illustrative comparison is one between China that was mentioned by the questioner and Peru. So China, you know, zoomed in very quickly on Wuhan, uh, 
despite uh, taking some time to acknowledge the, 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 the severity of the situation initially, but then was able to lock it down and using, you know, quite draconian measures, which, you know, some people may be quite uh, upset about and say that they violate basic freedoms, but they were able to keep people in their apartments and enforce the lockdown in a, in a very, in a massive way. Peru um, had, a, had a very big lockdown uh, that they were not able to enforce. 60% of the labor force in Peru uh, or, or thereabouts is informal. Um, prolonged lockdowns meant these people just had nothing to eat, so they went out to work and they went out shopping. And uh, as Ricardo was referring to Hugo Nyopo's paper, um, you know, if they don't have refrigerators, they have to go out to shop very often. And this is this is the case for many people in in poor countries. So uh, j- just to say that you know lockdowns come in very different varieties, and their outcomes are are dramatically different, which is probably an obvious thing. The other thing I'll say about the last part of the question, which is now that they're part of the pandemic toolkit, is it inevitable that countries will be better prepared for the unequal impacts? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, I actually think lockdowns being a blunt tool are very unequalizing in themselves, particularly in poor countries, because they create or exacerbate this massive new inequality between people who can work from home for prolonged periods of time and people who cannot work from home. Uh, and in poor countries, we will have no access to unemployment benefits or any other sort of social security. Uh, and therefore, you know, in the informal sector are very highly exposed uh, to having to go out, break the lockdown um, or um, other inequalities like some of the ones that Lucinda mentioned, which are even more more extreme in, in poor countries. So she, she referred, for example, to crowded housing. So if you think of trying to um, live in a lockdown in a favela or a big slum or a township in South Africa, uh, where in addition to very crowded conditions, you also have very poor access to clean water and sanitation. You can imagine what that does. So, um, so I think the lockdowns, you know, may have been necessary in some places, but in some other places, they were implemented badly. India is another example where, you know, no account was taken of what migrant workers in the cities uh, would have to do and how they'd have to respond. This is something Adnan knows a lot more about than I do. But my sense was that that lockdown was mismanaged in the way it was announced and, and implemented. Um, so, so yeah, so A, they vary dramatically. B, I actually think they, in some sense, contribute to some of the new forms of inequality that the pandemic creates and exacerbates. Thanks, Chico. So, Adnan, on to you. Uh, thank you, Tanya. Great question to which I don't have a great response, uh, except for saying uh, maybe it's too early to tell. But this is one of those several puzzles of, uh, of that COVID policy response has thrown up. Um, our colleague Tim and Sasha in the parallel uh, paper in the volume also highlight many of these, uh, these puzzles. One of those being that countries with good institutions by which I mean countries with strong executive constraints, elections, regular elections, and more citizen freedoms, seem to have performed worse, at least in the early stages of the pandemic. Whereas countries, uh, some of those with authoritarian, maybe competent authoritarian governments, with higher interpersonal trust and confidence in the government seem to have done well. Um, the way I at, at least find fascinating and uh, something that needs to be unpacked is state capacity is not just a function of uh, what exists on paper, call it installed state capacity or potential state capacity, but it's also a, a 
call, call it an outcome of uh, politics, um, state response, by which I mean the response of different players uh, within the state, citizen response, voluntary action, and how much do they comply, and uh, what I call earlier active learning. So unpacking all of those would be a rich agenda for future. But let me end on one thing, uh, which is uh, my primary area of interest, developing countries and emerging economies. An open question still remains whether this pandemic will prove to be an inflection or a turning point for the building of state capacity and institutional reform in developing countries in a way that the Great Depression and the World Wars did for uh, many of the OECD or richer countries. Um, my initial reaction is, uh, I hope very much so, but doesn't look likely in many places because of the divisive and polarized nature of the politics and because of the fact that, uh, in, at least in some of the places, um, states may or may not have uh, taken the right lessons in terms of building their state capacity and building capacity for learning in future. Thank you. Thank you, Adnan. Um, okay, let's go for a, another round because there are more questions coming in. Um, so first of all, to uh, Lucinda from Ivelina Hristova from uh, LSE, could you please elaborate more on the policy implications i.e. with respect to labour markets and intergenerational transmission of disadvantage. Uh, secondly, Chico, I wondered if you wanted to come back to Ricardo's challenge to you, which was, as I understood it, basically it's too early to say, and in fact these welfare impacts overall may reverse when we look at the course of the pandemic as a whole um, beyond the end of 2020. Um, Adnan, I have a question for you from Tony Hockley, uh, LSE Visiting Fellow. How much of a conflict is there between the need for more adaptive learning, public policy responses to events, and sustaining public confidence? Okay, so back to Lucinda. So policy implications. Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's, there's a lot here about sort of um, uh, breaking ne negative cycles, but also about supporting sort of positive cycles. So I would start by saying that the, the, the story is not, not, not all negative. You know, I'm saying that there was quite a lot of um, uh, intergenerational persistence, um, but there's also been a lot of change. There's been a lot of upward social mobility um, across ethnic groups. Um, and there's um, uh, large, largely um, created by education. Um, and I think, you know, sustaining those successes is going to be important for policy. So one of the things that um, I didn't talk about, but I think is going to be a really important issue to look at um, going forward is whether there have been specific impacts of the school closures on educational attainment. So educational attainment is, is um, are now very high across uh, minority groups um, and is much less sensitive uh, minority groups to, to, um, to, to uh, economic background as well. Um, and whether that will be sustained, and if it is sustained, then there is part. Then there is there is something of a potentially as positive story. Um, if it's not sustained, then policy will ne really need to address that. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of the labour market, I mean there are a number of I think there are a number of areas that we can think about. Um, there are some very specific areas such as um, uh, self employment. Um, so there's there I think there has 
been an appetite among the self-employed themselves to be much more brought into national insurance systems to provide them some some support in times of crisis. So there's uh, relatively, you know, sort of in the scale of things, relatively straightforward about issues about how you provide um, economic support in times of um, difficulty, in times of economic shock um, for those who are um, self-employed and therefore more vulnerable. Um, there are um, and there are other areas where you can think about how um, those who are more vulnerable will benefit from generally from policies. I mean, the anti-poverty policies um, before the um, uh, before, before 2010, were actually really successful in reducing um, child poverty, particularly for those groups that had highest rates of child poverty. So it's possible to do. Policy can address poverty. Um, it can um, use uh, universal levers like the minimum, minimum wage, but which will um, uh, disproportionately affect those who are most marginal. Um, and then there are areas around sort of more speci- very specific policies. Um, uh, and one that I keep, keep going on is this issue of no recourse to public funds for those who are subject to immigration control, uh, which means that they can't get um, uh, uh, support um, from the state um, if, um, if they have to be out of work for, for, for a reason. Um, and this is this has been talked about a lot. I mean, I, I've just been amazed how much this has now been talked about in a lot of contexts. Um, it hasn't been acted on, but it could potentially be. Um, and... Um, and the, the, the sort of the counter, the, the, you know, the, the, the counterproductive nature of such um, policies can be seen in, for example, the finding that um, uh, those care home workers, those care workers who were more likely to transmit infections, were those who didn't have any sick leave entitlement, um, for example. So you, you immediately start to see the benefits to everybody of having better safety net. Um, and finally, then I think there, there, uh, yes. So that's that's sort of more about sort of on the immigrant side. Um, and finally, I think we need to think about the kind of valuation of different sorts of jobs where um, people are clustered. Um, the whole social care crisis that we have, um, and the valuation of social care um, is is a nettle that the government seems to be um, doing the opposite of grasping. Um, and how long that can be sustained, I don't know. But that would be a very valuable one to grasp. From, and and um, help to addressing some of these issues. Thanks, Lucinda. So, um, Chico, it's all too early to tell. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Uh, it, it is too early to tell. Um, the the you know the review wanted to put out an issue early, uh, and there was this tension, I guess, that that Ricardo himself recognised between trying to do some work early that can still be informative. Um, but it's clearly too early to make definitive assessments. So, uh, you know, in, in the end of our paper, we have a bunch of caveats, and one of them is the pandemic is still ongoing and the distribution of poverty and mortality burdens may be very different in the future. Uh, so, you know, I, I completely agree with, uh, with, with Ricardo's comment in, in that regard. So, you know, as I emphasized in the beginning, this was a snapshot up until December 2020. I think if we redid it now, it would already look different given what happened in 2021. And I think if we do it a few years from now, it'll be more different still. Just just one quick point on his, you know, he mentioned the two sides, right? He mentioned the, the health the health side of the, of the vaccines and the two ways in which you can develop immunity. Uh, and he mentioned the, the IMF forecasts um, and, and how they're going to look different in 2024. Of, of the two, I think the first is really more important for our paper because um, because economically, we find that the richer countries 
we're doing better anyway, remember, because we look at poverty, not at recessions overall. So there's a difference uh, there. Um, but, but you know, it, uh, the, the reason rich countries had such a large share of the mortality of the burden of the pandemic in our work was because we were using these life years lost. And, you know, because, you know, Adnan had this great comparison of the demographic structures, the population pyramids of Italy and uh, Pakistan. I mean, that's exemplifies why we find that effect is that the, the pandemic is much more, uh, uh, kills much more at the, at the higher ages, as I said before. And so that's, that's, that's now that over time, uh, will stop being the case because the rich countries will get the vaccines and the poor countries uh, are not getting the vaccines. And, and so long as that is allowed to persist, which is a policy variable, both domestic and international policy variable, uh, then then that can go away. The, the economic things, if you look at poverty as we did, I don't think it'll make that much of a difference, uh, really, because, you know, as I said, the, the richer countries are already doing better in, in our analysis. It's really the, the vaccines that are going to that are going to shift uh, the, 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 the analysis that we did. And I think Ricardo's right about that. Thanks very much, Chico, and thanks for keeping it brief. Um, so, Adnan, the public doesn't like it if the government changes its mind. So uh, how do we combine adaptive policymaking with retaining public confidence? Uh, personally, I do not see a conflict between adaptive learning and sustaining public confidence. Uh, it is true that governments need to project confidence and sending mixed signals is not great for coordination and for their public image also. It is also true that some of this pressure to have um, strong, stable policies come from, from the press and from opposition, uh, from our system, and sometimes from the citizens. Imagine a government saying, uh, like, uh, we don't know, and the reaction would be, you don't know what you're doing. Um, so a lot of pressure comes from the system. But at the same time, um, governments could do much worse than, uh, than, than holding on to a particular line in the face of evidence. In other words, some degree of humility and some degree of uh, embracing the concept of learning and being open and transparent with the people, treating them as adults, uh, trusting them, and sharing with them some of your constraints is always a great strategy for sustaining confidence. Um, the other extreme is we have seen so many leaders, macho leaders around the world who have um, pretended that they know all the answers, that who have projected uh, maybe a false degree of confidence and look how, uh, how low they have fallen. Many of them, um, but most of them have fallen in, unfortunately, in many parts of the world. Um, let me also mention, this is also related to the question of uh, the relationship between politics and scientific expertise, evidence, and where one should rely. And whereas the pandemic has nudged, forced uh, even governments that were denying scientific knowledge and evidence to rely on scientific experts, at least to some extent, in some cases, maybe with not with the... With the uh, with their uh, hands on their hearts, more so for instrumental reasons for uh, public consumption. Uh, it is true that um, um, policy needs to be based on, on evidence and scientific expertise. And when the evidence changes, obviously policy also needs to, to, to respond and up, be updated. But in the end, like uh, political decisions are ultimately the domain of politics. They have to be taken by, by politicians and policy cannot be outsourced to, to, 
to experts and and to scientists in other word in short like being honest and sharing your concerns is a much better strategy for sustaining public confidence rather than projecting it falsely okay thank you very much so uh, i did promise ricardo that i would give all the panelists a chance to respond to his comments and i'm conscious that so far i've only uh, invited chico to respond um so perhaps uh, lucinda you would like to reflect on what ricardo um the ricardo's comments particularly on your paper where he was interested in what you thought about the mechanisms that lay behind um and, and he mentioned a, a range of of possible mechanisms that you might want to reflect on um and adnan um ricardo was asking you to think about um the importance of uh, the macro response in part um and where that fitted in and um the the concept of of learning to learn which you very much welcomed in your presentation um so if i can just ask uh, lucinda and adnan to respond to those um we do have many other questions very interesting questions in in the q&a that i haven't had a chance to put to the panel but i think that will unfortunately take us take us up to time um so uh, lucinda and then adnan thanks very much yes yeah, so 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 mechanisms so um uh, uh one of the mechanisms was raised was whether there's sort of biological factors here because we're talking about um uh, different mortality rates across ethnic groups um there was a lot of interest initially in whether vitamin d might be um a culprit in um greater risks um uh from covid-19 there has been investigations of that there's no evidence that vitamin d plays any sort of role in that um there's no good evidence for 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 biological factors um and and there seems no particular reason to resort to them when we have sort of plenty of other mechanisms and when also it would be tricky to to um to explain the differences between south asian groups for example and the differences between um black groups um if you were resorting to a biological explanation and so the other things that were raised were um uh I th- well, whether there are sort of household level factors, and, and I, I think I mentioned there there has been research. There's been research using different de- um, data sources, which have shown that um, uh, multi uh, multi person households seem to increase infection rates um, and also increase mortality rates using different different data sets. Those findings. So, so the household clearly does matter. Um, it doesn't fully explain differences um, across ethnic groups, but it clearly is. Um, there is there is good evidence that it is a risk. So it's it's a viable one. um there are um some uh a, a number a number of other other areas were raised um in relation to um to work and to um the experience of work um and again um i mean one thing that i was very struck by was the average age um of uh death um was substantially lower for um black africans in particular than it was for um white um uh yeah the white majority uh which to me suggested that this was this this reinforced um uh of um a, an explanation that this was happening at work at least to some degree and was happening at work more rather than out of work um and uh and then um the, one of the issues though of, of identifying me- mechanisms sort of categorically is that actually we don't we don't have vast numbers of deaths i mean they seem very large in in one ways but if you're breaking down and looking across ethnic groups we don't have vast numbers so some of it has to i think be slightly inferential in this way because we can't fully test and we don't have all the factors 
Um, but I think there has been a lot of testing of mechanisms, and I think there's good support for that. Um, I think what hasn't been done so much is breaking down by the generations and thinking whether there's sort of immigrant effects and then there's second generation and whether they're consistent across the two. And I think that would benefit from being looked at. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Thanks very much indeed, Lucinda. And then, brief word, please. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with this comment. There are other people, uh, especially Andres and others who have talked more about the micro response. The only thing I will say is uh, um, when it comes to developing countries and emerging economies, um, the macro response, not only of their domestic policy responses, but also how the international community responds uh, will determine to a large extent how uh, whether this short-term crisis has permanent long-term scars or not. And at least the, at the initial stages of this crisis, uh, many of the rich countries were, uh, um, um, the response that we saw was every country was basically um, um, taking care of its own interest. <laughs> Let me stop here. Thank you very, thank you very much indeed. Indeed, thank you everyone for your participation today. Uh, sorry if I didn't get to your questions in the Q&A, but thank you for attending and for your participation. Thank you, of course, to our speakers, uh, Francisco Ferreira, Lucinda Platt, Adnan Khan and Ricardo Hausman. Uh, your Papers are available in the LSE Public Policy Review if people uh, want to look at the more extended treatments of the subjects that you've been looking at uh, and talking about today. Uh, the link to that issue is in the chat, uh, ppr.lse.ac.uk. And you will also find in that issue an absolute bumper crop of other papers dealing with aspects of the COVID-19 crisis and policy response, including Angus Deaton on global income inequality, for example, Tim Besley on trust in institutions, John Jackson on motivations to comply with lockdown, Claire Wenham on lack of gender-informed policymaking and its implications, and so on and so forth. So I hope that we have whetted your appetite uh, thanks again to the speakers um, for your very stimulating papers and, and open response to the questions. And thank you, participants, uh, for your questions today. Bye bye, everybody.